Green Thumbs Rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feed Bin in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. Hey, Bob, are you there? I'm with you, Tom. All it's right. a pleasure. This will be fun today. My pleasure, too, because, you know, every time you're on, and I, I, I try to, uh, to you know, weasel my way into the show if I can, but usually you're so <laughs> overwhelmed with other people trying to call in. Now I've got you. Now I, I'm at the controls. So, but... <laughs> we, can, we can start with your questions. First, <laughs> I'll, I'll throw one at you. How are your raspberries growing? Uh, they have not yet ripened, but they're looking pretty good. I'm... Um, I'm of the sort because I know that there are, are different and different uh, strategies for doing raspberries. I I don't usually do much to them at all. I let them go. I, I mow down the ones that are growing in my yard outside of the the raspberry area. But I don't uh, I don't thin them. I don't cut them down. Uh, I don't do any of those things. I just let them be, and they they've been flourishing for I don't know ten years. I. I get loads of raspberries, so should I be doing something different? Well, you know, I, I tell people this. I never argue with success. I never argue with varieties. If people think they got the best variety in the world, that's just fine. I might encourage them to try something else. You know, it's uh, it's not too different than growing an apple tree. If you just decide you're not going to prune, you're just going to let it roll, uh, there are some advantages to that. I guess the biggest thing is... Uh, you know, you kind of, uh, you don't have the labor that goes along with this, this hobby. But, uh, you know, Tom, there are a couple things. Uh, that typically, when a raspberry patch like that is just left to go, we actually don't quite get the yield. Now, you're getting all you need, so you're, you're happy and you're satisfied. But what I usually do is I, I like to follow the commercial growers. And if they're going to put money and labor into some kind of a cultural practice, a growing technique, uh, there's generally good justification for that. And the justification is enhanced yield, minimal disease pressure, maybe minimal insect pressure. So with raspberries, what we do like to do is we like to separate them out. Uh, so you've got rows where you can walk and you can either put them in what we call a hedgerow, uh, down a row, or you can put them in hills where you've got walking paths, uh, both directions. But what this does, it opens up the patch so that you get more sunlight penetration. And what I found, and I did a little work on this, is if we were to even narrow the rows, in other words, we get uh, more walking space, more space between the rows, fewer plants in the row, we actually got enhanced yields per square foot and larger fruit. So, you know, I, again, I never argue with success. If you're getting what you need, uh, again, it's minimal effort. Uh, there's a little bit of effort that goes along with uh, growing raspberries. If you're going to actually uh, stake them and you're going to hedgerow them and you're going to prune out the old canes and so forth, uh, without a doubt, that's a fair amount of effort. It does produce, however, increased uh, yield and uh, productivity in a, in a more limited patch. So there's kind of a long answer to your question. No, you uh, know, I it, it's interesting because uh, you know, and I've heard all those strategies, and I and I would employ them, but. I'm still eating raspberries from last year, and I eat I eat them a lot. Uh, I put them on cereal. I make smoothies. I I don't know how many I got, but I mean it's several gallons sure. <laughs> you sure. know, of of raspberries. So I'm thinking, well, if I if I do any of that stuff, I I, I don't you know I've given so many away already, and I still have tons Fantastic. left. So I 
you know. Uh, and maybe that, that if you got lots of room, that's that's a good strategy. And again, you don't want to make this hobby. I tell you, growing raspberries and, and the techniques that we use is quite a bit of effort. I mean, you're going to stake, you're going to prune, you're going to have to take out the old canes, and you don't even do that. Is that correct? You just let them roll. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Is it is it fair to say that? That raspberries in this area, I mean, they flourish. I mean, it just they just seem like they are happy in this kind of climate. Well, you know, you're so very right there. They are a northern crop, a northern temperate crop. You really can't grow them farther south. I was startled. I have a sister that lives in the, the Maryland area. So we went into the local Safeway, their grocery store, and they can't really grow them. Uh, she's brought several from our patch on the farm uh, farther south and never was successful growing them out and uh, just too warm it shocked me how they sold raspberries they really considered it gourmet fruit where here we might have them in uh, quartz pints half pints uh, what we call clamshell or plastic clamshell packs there they had them in uh, quarter pints is the way they were selling them they're very very expensive so they were and that's just a couple tablespoons so I think it's one of those crops that is gourmet. It's something we should appreciate and take advantage of. And as you say, they are native to the area. And what you're doing, I'm assuming you started with one of the hybrid cultivars. The, the wild berries, of course, the fruit is very small. But you start with one of these hybrids. If you just want to let them grow and go, that's your option, certainly. But you have a high-value crop there. The other thing is, you know, they don't ship very well. They have to be... Uh, Something like the blueberry crop, we can mechanically harvest because the skin's tough with raspberries. It's called kind of a druplet where you've got these small little druplets, small little fruits on a composite, on a stem there, and uh, they shake off, they bruise easily, they can't mechanically harvest them. So most raspberry production goes into jams and preserves. Those are mechanically harvested because you can smash the fruit up, you're going to smash it up anyway. But a uh, table stock actually has to be hand-picked and that's the reason that raspberries are really so uh, so valuable, and the fact that we can only just grow them in the northern part of the United States. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, and, and what I do uh, is, you have to be diligent if you really want to get a great harvest. You're picking every day, uh, every single day, and it, and it usually lasts me. I don't know what it is for other people, but for me, I'm picking every day for three, four weeks. You know of. Yes. Of, uh, of a harvest, a significant harvest every day. Obviously, it peaks at a certain time, and then it starts to taper off. But every time I pick, I immediately put them on, like, a cookie sheet and some wax paper, and, and they go immediately to the freezer, and they freeze really nicely and keep for a long time. That, that's been my experience. You know, that's just great. You're doing a lot of things right. You know, the biggest problem we've had recently with raspberry crop is... Uh, it's a fruit fly called the spotted wing Drosophila, abbreviated SWD, and actually our commercial industry picked your own. That, that particular pest just totally wiped them out. They decided it wasn't worth the trouble. And uh, the one thing, uh, you know, the commercial growers, uh, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon and Washington, which are the two states that produce the most raspberries in the country, but they've had to go to very, very rigorous spray routines and uh, waiting periods and so forth. And I will tell people to do exactly what you're doing if you're, you want to avoid the use of all sprays. And it, it's a continuing process. There are a number of products that are labeled for use, but they all have waiting periods. So I just haven't even advised people going the spray route. But instead, following your technique there, where if you pick daily and then immediately freeze, 
Uh, if that fly is out there and makes a deposit, the egg hasn't had a chance to germinate. You get it right down in the freezer, and you're never going to have a problem with the spotted wing drosophila. What usually happens is people will go longer than that, or they will pick them. And I've done this myself. You pick them. You let them sit for 24 hours if you have a heavy infestation of this particular fly. It is one of the, uh, uh, perhaps one of the grossest insect things I've ever seen because that pile of raspberries that might be on a cookie sheet is suddenly covered with these little white larvae. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I, I shot a picture of that, and in one seminar I did on raspberry production, I showed that, and I had a woman that emailed me the next day. She said, Take that slide out of your presentation. I couldn't sleep for nights. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sort of of the sort where I plug my ears and go, ah, la, 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 la. And I, uh, I, I just find that the sooner I freeze them, I'm not going to see any of those little white worms and, you know, out of sight, out of mind sort of, sort well, of approach by me anyway. They won't, even, they won't even be there, Tom, because, uh, you know, you've frozen them so quickly. It does take a while for that egg to hatch and germinate. Now, the real interesting thing, as I say, this this problem became so pervasive that it shut down the pick-your-own industry, basically, in, in the St. Louis County. We did have enough of commercial growers. We had a number that marketed through the farmer's market. And uh, to the person, that they all gave it up. Now, the interesting thing is, last year, we didn't have a problem with it. And so everyone's scratching their head and saying, what was it different about last year? We'll see what happens this year, because the fruit is as you say, a little bit immature, and we won't know exactly the extent of the problem this year. We didn't, didn't know with this particular pest, and it's it's so pervasive, and it's impacted the industry so dramatically that there are a number of researchers, uh, particularly in, the, in Oregon and Washington, that have been taking a close look. They couldn't even tell us if uh, they were overwintering or if they were blowing in from other areas. We didn't know in the Midwest for sure. Uh, if we had a uh, an insect problem that was had established itself, was going to come back year after year, or if they were coming in on the trade winds from these high production areas like the Pacific Northwest. Last year, we don't know. We just didn't even have the problem that startled everyone. So we'll see this year. Maybe it's a problem that uh, won't be with us for a long period. Now, we had heavy snow cover, so these, these flies would be overwintering down in the soil and good protection with that snow. So we didn't have an open winter. We'll have to see what happens this year. But your technique, that's exactly what I've recommended. People pick maximum of two days. Sometimes you can stretch it out to two days, but pick continuously. Immediately freeze or process, and you'll never have a problem with them or eat them in that period of time. They won't they won't be a major problem. Yeah, you, you can. go three or four days, and you can have a problem, and we don't want to let any of that fruit grow to the ground. That's where they, uh, that they, they germinate, and the larvae emerge, and then the population builds. So you always want to pick up the fruit, or in your case, you're not even letting any, any of the fruit go because you're getting it all harvested, which is better yet. Yeah, you know, and you can always use those frozen raspberries to do some of those other products you were mentioning before. Anyway, uh, they, they freeze and they use really well uh, later on, so that's those are good tips. Bob, we're going to have to take a, a break. I, I want to remind everybody that the phone number is 722-0839. That's 218-722-0839 or 888-532-KDAL-610. It's 888-KDAL-610. Uh, if you would like, to, uh, if you have questions for Bob Olin, I, I have a few myself, but I don't want to hog up all your time. So, so we'll uh, open those phone lines and take a break. And we are listening to the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. 
It is 9.31 on the KDAL Morning Show, the Bob Olin Show. Bob Olin is uh, on the phone. Uh, you know, we were mentioning the the insect infestation and, and the bugs that can affect the raspberries. What's making the news right now, Bob, is uh, the, the spraying to uh, kill off the gypsy moths, and a lot of that is happening up the North Shore. And this is a really destructive insect, right? can be very, very destructive, and um, people don't uh, value our hardwood forest. It, it's it's interesting as we move forward here with the world's population growing and with uh, some of the intense wildfires, unfortunately, that we've had. The uh, the forest and the, uh, the uh, deciduous forest becomes more and more valuable, and so for control, I really think that... Uh, that's what that's all about, and of course, uh, they're going to try to be careful using biologicals and so forth to, to get this under control, but it uh, it can be a major, major problem, and that forest resource, uh, forestry is one of the keystones, of course, of uh, our industrial base in northeastern Minnesota, so it's, uh, it is very significant and important, and we just put put uh, belief in the, uh, the agencies that are conducting this that they've been very careful about how they handle it. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, and someone posed the question to me about, um, because earlier this or earlier this year, and we talk about some of the, the, the destructive things in the plants and insects and, you know, and what, what roles they serve in our society. I don't know if you heard, but earlier this summer, I had a very bad case of poison ivy. I mean, so much so that I had to be put on antibiotics to take down take down some severe infection, and and it lasted a, a significant amount of time. So, I posed to my daughter, who also knows a few things about plants, and she had studied a lot of earth science and plants and invasive species and that sort of thing in school. So, I I posed her the question. I'll ask you the same question: what What purpose? There's poison. What is? What are some of the good reasons we have poison ivy? I'm going to say, under God's green earth, there's got to be a role that that plant p- plays uh, in our uh, ecosystem. But I, for the life of me, can't figure out what good it would be. Well, in your situation, I happen to be quite allergic to it as well. I never was as a, as a young child or young person, but all of a sudden, uh, my immune system apparently flipped. So when I see those. Three shiny leaves, boy! I run the other direction. <laughs> so, so does it serve any good things? Well, you know, uh, I guess I have to take another approach on that. It, it's it's successful, like like any animals. You take a look at uh, even the mosquito population, which has been very high with the moisture we've had there. You kind of question what what role they play, but if they're successful, they're able to reproduce. They adapt. Uh, then they've done their job, I guess. And in many cases, uh, you know, there is an interaction between a lot of plants. We really don't like a lot of monoculture. So, I, you know, I can't give you a real specific uh, reason, but you look at so many things. And, you know, it's green plant. Let's put it this way. It does produce uh, carbon dioxide, produces oxygen. It holds the soil in place, and it will actually grow in some very sandy locations. So I guess for erosion control, both wind and, and soil erosion, it is well adapted for certain sites that other plants don't do very well on. So maybe it has a role that way. But let's face it, it's, a, it's been successful, but only marginally. You know, you find it, particularly in this area, uh, in some rather selective locations. It usually has to be full sun, usually a light, sandy soil, which isn't typical of this area. But it does grow in areas where other plants won't, so maybe it has a role that way in terms of uh, conserving 
uh, the, the, the topsoil top. It's a, it's amazing how how potent a plant can be like that. I mean, just a little bit of the oil from that plant can go, go a long way in, in infecting you. I know that one area that that has historically had a lot of poison ivy is along Park Point. So if you are Absolutely. susceptible to it, I, I, I understand those trails there have quite a bit. Yes, and I picked it up there myself once, and uh, so now I'm extremely, extremely careful. I picked it up in the Boundary Waters once, so and that's really unusual. There aren't many sandy beaches, but this was right off the sandy beach, and I should have been a little bit more alert. But picked it up there because I'm uh, like you, Tom. You have my sympathies. I heard your discussion earlier. I was aware that you'd come down with that, and that uh, that can be nasty for those of us that are losing. When I was younger, I could walk through a, a, a poison ivy patch and have no impact at all, never even paid any attention. Wow. And then it called me by surprise. So I don't know what the individual susceptibility is or the reason or, or that. Uh, perhaps a, you know, a dermatologist could give us some kind of an explanation for that. But some people, and it is nasty for those of us that uh, have encountered it and are allergic to it, uh, you have my sympathies because I've been through that myself. It takes a long time to heal, doesn't it? I, yeah, it does. It, it's it's almost it's it's almost comical when you when you get it. I mean, it's it's not funny when you have it, but you think it's like, wow, how could it? This plant is horrible. Uh, it's yeah. uh, and it's funny because I knew better. Uh, we had uh, we have some lake property. My brothers and I share out in western Minnesota. And we had, you know, of course, there were a number of storms that took down trees and and lots of vegetation that was destroyed and tornadoes and straight line winds and things like that. So, I, you know, I I armed up with the chainsaw and and the person I was with said, you know what, that's 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 poison ivy. And I said, are you sure? She says, I'm 100 percent sure that's poison ivy. But some reason I, I kind of just counted it and. And chopped up, uh, you know, did did the work to, to remove some of those trees, and and then lo and behold, uh, you know, you got to be careful if you are, especially if you're susceptible to it. And you know, you're right, Tom. It looks different. Most of us, like what you'll find out on Park Point, is a, you know, it's a plant that's uh, close to the ground. It's, it's a classic three shiny leaves. It's, it's quite recognizable. But you get in a forested situation like you'd encountered there, and it actually grow tendrils will work its way up uh, to higher elevations, and it surprises people because it's, it's not kind of a classic form, so I'm sure that's what you uh, what you encountered there. Yeah, you know, and they're different sizes, too, I've seen. You know, you expect, like, a smaller leaf, but they can... Right. I've seen them, like, in different sizes. Does that sound right? No, that does sound right. Yes, indeed, but always that uh, three, leaf, three leaflets, I think that's common, but the leaves can be different sizes. And um, and and it can grow quite differently. That's for sure. And um, it depends, I think, a little bit on light exposure. It depends on soils. It depends on if it's growing in a wooded setting or if it's in more of an open area like a beach beach area. And uh, it expresses itself quite differently. But always the three leaves. You got to be careful of. Yeah. Well, this is an exciting time uh, for growing plants, obviously, this time of year where a lot of them, as you mentioned, you know, some of the fruits that are that are ripening now and uh, the strawberry picking, is that still going on or is that pretty much done with? We're, we're finishing up with strawberries. It was a little later because May was so very, very cold this year. So the, the strawberries got off a little bit of late start. You know, most of the varieties that we grow there are what are considered June-bearing varieties. And we always get them around the 4th of July. This time it was around the 10th of July this this year. And uh, that's pretty much wrapping up right now. 
But uh, next in will be raspberries and then followed up by blueberries. And I think from what I can see, both raspberry and blueberry crops uh, should be very good this year. And again, all that snowfall that we had, you know, it's rather remarkable because uh, earlier in, in talking with Dave, we talked about expecting a hot, dry summer. It's very interesting. And the Weather Service, uh, no other climate prediction center stayed to that. And, you know, they have real general maps. And it's very interesting. We have been really blessed with the moisture that we've had here. And it's just in this northern tier, you just get a little bit farther south, even in the Twin Cities, and it's been dry, and uh, in the Midwest, it's been drier than normal. So they were right uh, along those lines. Now, we're supposed to get more rain everywhere. We kind of need that across the Midwest, where there's so much grain being produced and shortage of grain because of the conflict in Ukraine. So it's really critical that we get the moisture. But it's rather remarkable, uh, Tom. We've had this, uh, just about this perfect growing season where we've had uh, moisture, and then we've had sunlight, and we've been able to dry things down. If things stay moist for too long, we have major disease problems. I've not seen a lot of that yet because we have the opportunity. We'll get moisture, rain like we had this morning, and then things dry up, and we might get some more rain a little later, and then we dry that plant tissue up. So it's been a nice combination of both sun and and moisture, but it's rather unique. Now, last year, our you know, our uh, beef and our dairy producers, it depends so much on hay, hay being produced. We can't grow field corn uh, or really a lot of uh, soybeans either. The main staples for a lot of these uh, uh, husbandry animals, the herd animals. And uh, so we rely on hay. Last year was hot and dry. Hay production was way down. Hay production this year is way up. So I think those that hung on and managed to get through last year are doing very well this year. So we're we're really blessed with the moisture that we've had, and we expect some additional good crops coming up, beginning to see more crops coming into the farmer's market. And if I can mention, because I, I said I would do this, I'm going to get some of the details. we got a new event on the Duluth Farmer's Market called Art in the Market, totally different than the vegetable thing. That'll be Thursday night, but I just uh, want to do that. It's a venue that we've opened up to some of our local artists uh, just as kind of a... Uh, a community service. So I'll get you some of those details after the break. But uh, uh, we're beginning to see crop come in at the farmer's market. Locally produced crops were not, of course, uh, tomatoes yet. Uh, it's a little early for all that. But nonetheless, uh, high-quality greens coming in, a lot of radishes. going to bring in some zucchinis and peas and beans for the first time this week. So things are definitely uh, beginning to come, and that's a response to the good moisture we've had, Tom. Yeah, sounds really good. Again, a reminder... Uh, 722-0839. That's 218-722-0839 to call. Bob, you do have uh, Brenda on the line with a question. Great. Hi. Good morning, Bob and Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I was wondering if I've seen a few armyworms. Is there any indication how heavy they will be next year? Oh, there's a good question. The, yeah. uh, the notorious forest tent caterpillars. I've seen a few. We've seen a few heavier concentrations just a little bit farther west and south in the Cromwell area. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, I don't anticipate, you know, they tend to build, and, you know, we're way overdue. This is a cycle that typically will run every eight, nine years, and, and the last infestation was quite a bit uh, before that time. So we're kind of overdue. I would say at this point, um, I wouldn't expect next year, but if this population builds, then it could be the following year. But you're definitely right. We've seen forest tent caterpillars. This is a little different. You know, the, the army worm, which they're commonly known as, the army worm is a 
is a grain pest, uh, hot and dry. We're probably going to see some of those in our forage areas. They can be extremely destructive. Uh, the forest and caterpillar can be a huge nuisance. It does strip down the aspen, the popple trees, of course, in the area. That's its primary food source. But those popple trees are so adapted to these infestations, I think they've been around as long as we've had the popple forest in the area. And uh, the aspen trees can get stripped down early, and they've got a mechanism where they've got a double bud. They re-sprout so that we get leaves again that season, and we don't lose the uh, the aspen forest in the process. So they're well adapted, so they're not um, the kind of major insect uh, pest or economic pest that the army worms would be or the gypsy moth can be. But they are a super nuisance, and I'll agree with you there. I can't give you a good answer. We've seen them. We'll just have to see uh, if the population begins to build. Okay. Uh, what you can, what you can you look for. Thank you for your uh, insight. Yeah, what you can look for is you can look for the egg masses. And, oh, I do. Uh, I go out and cut them off and burn them off. Cut them off. There, <laughs> there you go. That's, My neighbors that's the way to handle them. up and down the road. They're like, what's she doing in her car? <laughs> <laughs> you can, there you single-handedly go to save I us know, all. Thank so, you. I a little war against them, yes. Thank you, Brenda. You're, you're one of those great uh, community uh, civil servants we've got oh, yeah, out there. Sure. Thank you very much. <laughs> we have to take a break now. 944, you're listening to The Bob Olin Show on KDAL. 948 is the time. Bob, uh, with, uh, you know, and, and, and we're looking at a bit of a cooling trend later on this week, but for the most part, these warm temperatures, uh, good and bad, or primarily good around oh. here? Primarily good. I mean, when, when we look at temperatures uh, 75 to 85, that's just about perfect with adequate moisture. So, uh, you know, we're all tuned into the national and international news where the rest of the world is pretty warm right now. And uh, we feel a little bit smug right now. Now, we put up with it for, uh, what, how, much, how many months of winter this year, right through May? But nonetheless, right now we can certainly enjoy these temperatures. It's just about ideal, uh, just about ideal for plant growth. You know, we always watch the evening temperatures because we want to get uh, that fruit set up on tomatoes, uh, everybody's favorite uh, garden crop there, and that does require warmer evening temperatures uh, as well as warmer day temperatures. So you can't get the extremes for good fruit sets. You can't be too cool at night, and 40 is too cool. we got to stay above that 45, 50 at night, which we are, and we don't want to get above about 90 degrees during the day. So we got to get these cycles. we got to go about 48 hours there so that the... Uh, we get pollen get transferred, and then we got to get fertilization to occur, and we got a pollen tube that grows down through that plant, and and if you hit those extremes, that growth stops. So we've got just about ideal temperatures now, so we should be getting some very good fruit set on many many crops. So, Tom, this is just about ideal. Uh, kind of pinch yourself because it's it's very comfortable. Even 80 degrees is comfortable, and. Um, I think we're very, very fortunate. Again, when you look at the map, uh, the rest of the world needs a little bit more moisture, at least in the United States, and we've just been very fortunate lately, and we've gotten what we need in terms of green and moisture. So good for all of us that are uh, doing some gardening, doing some growing. Your raspberries are going to love this for sure. I'm sure they're lush and green right now, and it's just a question of uh, giving a, just a little bit of time to, to ripen up, certainly. I think that you would appreciate this, uh, that I, I actually had a great opportunity in the last three weeks I had been in Europe, uh, in primarily in, in Sweden and Denmark, and mm. in particularly in Sweden. And this is something that I observed. For one thing, just lush vegetation in that country. Uh, and, yeah. and, and one thing that un- 
is very common in in Sweden is a lot of people out there have greenhouses. I mean, you would be it's remarkable how many homes have a greenhouse uh, that they use first of all to you know to to get their plants started and secondly apparently they use them in the winter time to be outdoors in the winter and they'll find some way to heat it and they sit outside and and drink coffee uh, in the winter time <laughs> and in the summer uh, you know they get their plants started but really um, lots of berries I mean you mentioned how in some of the cooler temperatures in Sweden I would say is probably the equivalent of southern parts of Canada as far as the climate goes and it's really lush there I, I didn't expect that yeah, I'm assuming they get the moisture that comes from the North Atlantic there, and uh, I've not had that occasion. I've got some Swedish blood in me, so I, I kind of envy you. That's uh, my bucket list. I'd like to get back there and see the old country a little bit, but I know it is beautiful, and I know um, not too dissimilar from northern Minnesota. But I think we have uh, probably more intense, uh, warmer temperatures. The greenhouse phenomenon, we got the saunas, but there's... Uh, there's not too much heat gain from a sauna except from that wood stove, but uh, I, that's kind of intriguing to me, quite honestly. We see a little bit more of that in Alaska, where there are a lot of folks that do have uh, personal greenhouses. Maybe a trend that's going to going to happen here as well, but uh, that's that's a very interesting phenomenon. I know the country is lush, Norway is as well, and uh, but right now, you know, we're quite dependent on these winds that come in from the northwest. We don't it's a long ways from the Pacific Ocean, but nonetheless. We got to get our moisture after it's swept across Great Plains, where Sweden gets it right off the ocean there. So, I could see why it could be very, very lush. I'm assuming that uh, did you get some of the berry crops? They they grow the lingonberries so well there. And There's a lot those. of lingonberries, blackberries, raspberries. Uh, obviously, there are blueberries there as well. A lot of those, you know, lingonberries just everywhere you go in in scandinavia you find every every menu item and you know and I, and I we were talking about that a little bit about about foods of other countries you know and 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 the different cuisines you find you know all over the world and really the best ones are the ones that use what they have available you know would use what what grows in those areas and then you know and they and they create a cuisine out of it you know that's right. that's kind of the way the world works right well, that's for sure, and that's the way it always really worked. All food was at one time local because we weren't shipping everything throughout the country and throughout the world, and maybe we're going back to certainly more of that. So you want to do what's ripe in season and what you can really grow easily. You know, I'll share one thing with you. I'm kind of amazed. I, uh, I do grow some, um, uh, you know, different types of radishes, but uh, it's a crop that comes in very early, and it's one crop that I have available right now, and I'm amazed at uh, how some people will, will uh, adapt to certain crops. And, you know, they're roasting these radishes right now, which I've not even tried. We like to roast a lot of the root crops, and uh, that has become extremely uh, popular right now. And there's nothing like beets and carrots and, and uh, the potatoes. You get it at a higher temperature, 400 degrees or so, a little oil, a little salt there, and uh, it makes for a great way to, to consume your vegetables. But radishes, the cooler temperature, about 300 degrees, longer periods of time, 45 minutes to an hour. But a lot of people are roasting radishes now. So there are all kinds of different ways, I guess, that you can prepare locally produced product at any time during the season. And, um, and that's what we have. We have to work with what we have in right now, naturally. And uh, people have figured out ways to make them taste uh, extremely good. So that's that's an interesting phenomenon. Sometime I'd like to explore 
that northern Scandinavian cuisine and, and their production with you uh, on another ba- another time, Tom. It sounds fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because um, you know you look at the variety of of, of foods you, you, that are available in France and Italy because of the warmer temperatures, and you're not going to get that in Scandinavia. But if you follow, you know, cuisine circles. It's oftentimes that it's actually like a Scandinavian chef is named like the best chef in the world, whatever that award is called, uh, mm-hmm. because you know it's it's the, it's the ability to to you know forage and 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 find these things that are that are that are so many edible plants out there. It's it's remarkable, right? Yeah, that's true, and you know the great thing about uh, naturally sourced material like that is that uh, they tend to concentrate the flavors and the colors. Lingonberry has been kind of a challenge for us to grow in this area, and I think, uh, believe it or not, we get some pretty intense heat uh, during the during the month of July, oftentimes, and I think that's been our detriment. But uh, we've had a number of people that have tried lingonberries commercially, even, and they've struggled with them here in the Midwest. But Scandinavia must be extremely well adapted. I think it's those cooler temperatures they have during the summer and the, uh, the moisture that comes from the the North Atlantic there as well. But, you know, did you find, Tom, that overall uh, food was more expensive than, than it is here? Uh, I don't. I think it's maybe a little bit. Yeah, maybe a little bit more, but not a lot. It's it's not a, a big difference. Uh, they obviously have some different foods, and some of them remain the same. And, you know, in like every developed country they've you know they've got everything available if, if you want right. it you know you can you get food from south america or or yeah. you know other parts of russia or wherever you happen to you know get food it's available there you know yeah interesting fascinating so uh in exploring the, the native cuisines and the culture i think that's that's just great uh we do have a lot of just super chefs you know i work with our master gardeners appreciate everything that they do a lot of great projects we'll talk about sometime but uh they're also very good cooks, like to use what comes out of the garden. So I think, particularly this year, with the inflation we've got out there, uh, people are really kind of focusing on the fruits and vegetables and what they can grow uh, locally. I mentioned uh, the Duluth Farmers Market. I, uh, you know, that we are a farmers market, and that's been the uh, that's been the big uh, the big focus for us there for sure. And in our uh, bylaws, you've got to be a local producer producing. Uh, 90% of your product has to be locally produced and has to be fruits or vegetables. But nonetheless, uh, we are opening it up. we got something called uh, uh, Art in the Market, and that's going to be this Thursday from 3 to 7. Local artists featuring their wares. Uh, there's going to be the Duluth Ukulele Band, which I'm not at all familiar with, but it sounds interesting. Uh, there's going to be some uh, Crank and Dasher ice cream is going to be there, so it's going to be kind of a fun fun kind of a phenomenon for sure there and that's three to seven 21st avenue or 14th avenue east and third street and uh that will be a fun event free event so you can come and you know the duluth farmers market's kind of a community focus anyway so that's going to be kind of fun we're going to try it one night three to seven this thursday but the regular market two to five on wednesday 14th avenue east and third street and of course on saturday from from uh eight until noon and the crops are now beginning to come in, and every week gets better and better as we, we move along here, Tom. 
I, I, I still have the picture that, and I share that picture you sent of uh, that that young child, uh, I don't know, a toddler holding that that kohlrabi that uh, that looks like the size of a basketball. Uh, you know, and it's what we've been talking about is it, it, everything about the farmers market is is representative of everything we've said about you know of utilizing the area that you've got to to grow bountiful crops. Right, absolutely, and that uh, that particular kohlrabi, uh, it's amazing. That was a uh, fascinating, you know, kohlrabi is a crop, again, cabbage family, extremely nutritious, and uh, they've grown some uh, some newer varieties, Cossacks, one of them that's just uh, very, very large, almost basketball size. And the interesting thing, great high-quality kohlrabi would get a little woody, some of the old, uh, older varieties, new varieties, uh, Boy, I'll tell you, you can buy a, a volleyball-sized kohlrabi, put it in the fridge, take off a slice, uh, two or three slices a day, and people actually, very good crop. And the nice thing is it can almost taste like an apple, and yet uh, it, it, it's in that cabbage family. Yeah. You know, I think about some of the issues in our society, Tom, and, and uh, you know, right now I'm outside quite a bit at the time. Our gardeners, of course, are out there, and I think probably just getting away from a lot of the electronics, uh, getting away from this confined indoor environment, just getting out there does so much for your both your physical and your mental health. Absolutely. Bob, we got to cut it now, so thank you so much. This is KDAL and the Bob Olin Show. For Twin Ports Home, for Twins Baseball.